0: You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Well, this weekend we're kicking off a new message series leading up to Easter, entitled, The Foolishness of God. This year, Easter, for the first time in my lifetime, falls on April 1st. And we want to examine the reality that although the celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection seems foolish to many outside of faith, that for those of us who trust and follow Jesus, this is truly the foundation for our faith. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at some important themes that are developed in a book of the Bible that we're going to spend some time in throughout this series. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to 1 Corinthians, or if you have a Bible app, you might want to pull up 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or follow along in the message notes. Uh, as I've shared before, one of the one of the goals, the dreams, the, the vision that I have as, as just an individual and as a person that serves in my role of this church is I would love over the next decade or so, for us, and I have started keeping track about two years ago, our goal is to try to cover uh, all the books of the Bible, to look at all the different aspects of how God speaks to us through the 66 books that we find in the Bible. And so one of those books that we've not really developed and looked into at great length is is this letter of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to dig into that leading up to Easter this this year. Now, earlier this year, uh, there was a publication that put out an overview of the 66 books of the Bible, and and it it was a publication called The Babylon Bee. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever followed this website or periodical, okay? It is truly a sarcastic take on somehow, sometimes the way that uh, church operates and sometimes maybe the way that Christians take themselves too seriously, and it's written from a Uh, a comical, uh, sarcastic, tongue-in-cheek manner. So if you don't get sarcasm, you're probably not going to like the Babylon Bee. But if you like sarcasm, you might really enjoy looking it up. But at the beginning of the year, when a lot of churches were rolling out, as we did, uh, this challenge for people to read through the entire Bible in a year, come up with a Bible reading plan for the year, they came out with an article entitled the TLDR edition of all 66 books of the Bible. Now, I'm not that hip, so I didn't know what TLDR means, okay? Does anybody know what that means? Okay, there's a couple people that are more connected than I am. Now, I didn't know, so I had to Google, what's TLDR means, And it means too long, didn't read, okay? So, The too-long-didn't-read edition of all 66 books of the Bible. So what they did is, in fact, at the beginning of the article, it says, forget about reading through the Bible in a year. Now you can read through the Bible in about five minutes, okay? So they give a very brief synopsis of each book of the Bible. It starts with Genesis. This was their description of Genesis. God makes everything, and it's really good for about 3.2 seconds, And then as you keep reading through the different books of the Bible, uh, they came to the book of Ruth and it said, Ruth, the bachelorette, the Hebrew edition. Now, if you have never read the book of Ruth, you'll have to go back and read it to see how they came up with that title. Then first Samuel, first and second Samuel, we looked at the last, uh, series, talks about David and Goliath. Okay. We looked at David and his relationships with others. But by the time you get to the, New Testament, the portion of the Bible written after Jesus came to this earth, you get to the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, and this is how they describe 1 Corinthians. Stop screwing stuff up, Corinth. And in so many ways, that's a good description of this book. And then 2 Corinthians, I like that. Corinth, I mean it this time. Corinth... Well, in many ways, that's a good, quick overview of these two letters, as this church in Corinth had a lot of problems. Yet, I love how this letter begins, a letter that's quite long. It's got 16 chapters. We're not going to have time to read all 16 chapters. We're going to look at the first four chapters, the first four weeks, and then we are skip to chapter 15 on Easter weekend. And yet, even in the midst of all the problems that are addressed in this letter, the author, the Apostle Paul, writes an introduction that is quite amazing. It's an introduction that begins with an expression of great gratitude for God's grace. So if you're taking notes, the introduction of this letter is gratitude for God's grace. We find in these first verses of this letter that addresses all these problems, not a tense, upset tone that maybe you would expect that the apostle would write to a church that had a lot of problems, but instead it begins with this encouraging, opening expression of intense gratitude. Listen to these words in verse 1. This letter is from Paul chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I think there's a great lesson embedded in this introduction. For those of us who are parents with children, even if our children are now adult children and out on their own. Or for those of us who have a leadership role, whether it be within the church or maybe at school or at work. As we address problems that we might see in our family, in our workplace, at school, or even in the church or in a small group, let's make sure that we don't blow it out of proportion. And make sure that we don't forget that which we have to be grateful for. The Bible continually reminds us over and over again that we are called to be a thankful people. We're called to be thankful in all circumstances. And I know that sometimes there's those days that that's tough to be thankful. I had one of those days this past week. It was just, a, just things just didn't flow as I'd hoped, and it just I got home at the end of the day. It was just kind of a tough day. Sometimes the only thing you have to be thankful on those kind of days is, well, that day is over, okay? I can be thankful for that, and tomorrow will be better. Paul begins this letter to a troubled church by saying, I'm grateful for you. I believe in you. I believe that you belong to God and that God is making you holy, that he's setting you apart. He's setting you uh, aside for a special purpose. And more specifically, in verse 4, he writes, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul focused not on the problems. He focused on the grace that God would apply to the problems. I'm glad that God doesn't see us as we are, but I'm glad that God sees us through the lens of what we can become in Jesus Christ. That's important for us to remember. In fact, in this encouraging introduction, Paul tips his hand to the source, the focus of his confidence, because it just kind of leaks out in this introduction. Have you ever noticed that when you talk to someone, even if it's the first time that you meet them, if you really listen, And if they will express uh, more than just a hello or a greeting, if they will begin to put some sentences together, if you really listen, you can start figuring out what's important to them. You can start figuring out what is a focus of their life. You know, this weekend, it's been great. My daughter and granddaughter have been here, and I've enjoyed just spending time with my three-year-old granddaughter, Jacqueline. You know, Saturday morning, got up after the dance, and she, when she got up, she just she was just talking. She she talks from the time she gets up to the time she goes to bed. I love it, but to, you know, I learned a lot about her world. I learned about the importance of Paw Patrol and Doc McStuffins. <clears throat> In fact, after breakfast, she said, "Let's watch Doc McStuffins." So I watched an episode. I didn't know about Doc McStuffins, but that's important to my granddaughter. If you listen to my daughter and wife talk for very long, you'll probably figure out that as nurses, they're passionate about patient care. If you listen to my other daughter that lives in D.C., you'd learn that she's passionate about educating children in the inner cities. You see, if you listen to people carefully, you'll find out what's important to them. In this introduction. Paul lets leak out what's the focus of his heart. What's the focus of his mindset as he writes these Corinthians? In the first four verses, the apostle Paul mentions the name of Jesus Christ five times. In fact, in the first nine verses, before he gets to the theme of the entire letter, he mentions Jesus Christ's name eight times. You see, he's letting it leak out here that his number one goal, his number one focus for the young Christians in Corinth, Greece, is that they would grow in their relationship, their partnership, they would grow in their understanding of discipleship with Jesus Christ. Now, this is a great reminder for all of us. See, it's a lot easier for us to grow as a Christian if we focus on the one that we're seeking to follow, if we'll focus on the one that we're seeking to imitate, that we're seeking to learn from. Instead, what happens so often for us is we end up not focusing on the one that we're following. We end up focusing on our own shortcomings, our own weaknesses, our own sin. You know, you can't grow and change if you're focusing on your inadequacies and your weaknesses. You see, that's why Paul, as he writes this group of Christians, and by the way, we can tell from the way the history plays out that that Paul started the church about A.D. 50. He's writing them in A.D. 55. The the oldest Christians there are probably only about four years old as a Christian. It's a young church, a, a, a church full of young Infant or baby Christians. And Paul's writing to them. He says, I know you've got problems. I know you've got struggles. But I want to make sure that you put your focus where it needs to be. Put your focus on Jesus Christ. Put your focus on the one who can change you, the one who can transform you. Some of us have that tendency to be a navel-gazer, and we tend to look at our problems We need to look up and look to the one who's going to change us and transform us. I'm grateful that that was Paul's focus as he writes these Christians. He was focused on God's grace and how God, through his grace and power, was going to change them. Now, that introduction leads to Paul's major appeal for for this entire letter. Most believe that verse 10 is the theme. uh, In our notes, we've got the appeal. It's the appeal of the letter. And if you're taking notes, the appeal here is unity within the church. In verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I don't know if you knew this, but when we pray in the name of Jesus, that's what it means. We're praying in the authority of Jesus. You see, in name of means you're When someone came in the name of the king, they were coming in the authority of the king. So to pray in the name of Jesus Christ means we're we're leaning into his authority. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. It's interesting that a focus of Jesus' prayer life, toward the very end of his time on earth, before he went to the cross, do you remember what he prayed for? The thing that he was the most passionate about toward the end of his life, he prayed for unity of his followers. He prayed that for those who would believe in him, even those who were later to come, like us, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Why did he pray that? Because he knew that that unity is tough. I mean, it's so rare in this world. I mean, all we got to do is look in our country and see the the, all the conflict and and division and unity is hard to come by. It's hard to come by at school. It's hard to come by in the workplace. It's hard to come by in a country. And yet, Jesus said, If my followers will really come together and be unified as one, That will be a powerful sign to the world that there's something different about this group of people. There's something powerful happening here. In fact, Jesus says if if his followers will be one, that will demonstrate to the world that he truly is who he claims to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is the continual prayer of our elders here at Southwest. I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful that every time I meet with them and pray for them, they're always thanking God for the unity we experienced and experience here at Southwest and praying that God will strengthen and protect our unity. The main focus for the Apostle Paul as he begins this letter to a troubled church. He specifically calls them to live in harmony with each other. I love that musical term, harmony. Although I'm not a musical person, I mean I have trouble playing the radio, but but I and I don't have a good ear for music. Which and and anyone that sits around me when I sing, they, their ear hurts too. But uh, but I can typically tell when something's not in sync. It's weird. I, I might not be able to hit the pitch, but you know when my wife and I watch The Voice, and you're waiting for those chairs to flip around. I can just—I'll look at my wife and say, "That's not quite on key, is it?" And she'll say, "That's right," because she's got a good ear. But you see, when when it's in harmony, it just—it clicks. I've been told that those are good at music. That to be in harmony, you not only have to sing or play, but you have to listen to others. Listening to the other is a key ingredient. For harmony, whether for it to exist in music, marriage, family, or the church family. The NIV here in this passage says, Agree with one another. Why? For the sake of unity. This verse also calls them to let there be no divisions in the church. If we keep reading in 1 Corinthians, we find that the source of these divisions is that some were beginning to follow certain personalities within the church, whether it be Paul, Apollos, or Peter. That would be like today, people saying, well, I follow Larry, our creative arts minister, or I follow Andrew, or I follow Roger. Paul says, no, 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 don't focus on personalities. Focus on the one that we're all following. Jesus Christ. In this theme verse, we're told the solution of their disunity is for them to be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Here at Southwest, we believe the key for us to to continue to remain united as a church is for us to rally around our purpose, to love God, love people, serve the community, and share Jesus, and to share his mission of making followers or disciples in addition to that purpose, we think it's important for us to rally around the, the vision, the, the thought of what God's called us to be, a, a church that's bridging the gap to those without Jesus so that no one has to live without hope. So the continual challenge for each person, each ministry, each small group, each, each uh, ministry leader here at Southwest is to keep asking ourselves, how, how can I be a part of bridging the gap to those outside of faith. That's why I'm especially excited about this weekend. The father-daughter dance. was a lot of new dads here. That was great to see. Friends of others here at Southwest. The Feed the Hungry event, a great opportunity for us, not just to make a difference in the world, but to invite our friends, neighbors, people in the community to come alongside us as we serve others. And by the way, uh, as Andrew shared, we're a little light on that 2.30 hour. So we just decided today that if, if you'd like to work two shifts this y- year and you've signed up for the one, then we're just going to say stick around and serve the second one, okay? And, and we'll waive that $10 fee if it's your second shift, okay? And the same thing, if you've signed up for the 4 o'clock shift and you say, hey, I'd like to serve a second hour. Because last year, people said, it was so much fun. It went so fast. I'd like to do it again. And we said, well, we're sorry. Another group's coming. But this year, we're going to say, if you want to come early at 2.30, and then you could pay then and serve the second hour, uh, we'll waive that cost. By the the way, the church is covering the balance of this to cover the supplies and the shipping to Haiti of these foods. Finally, our last point today, this introduction of this message here is the introduction of this letter. It leads us to a foolish message that these young Christians in Corinth were called to embrace. This is the message we want to develop more fully over the next four weeks. But if you're taking note, the message is the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul describes it in verse 18. He says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the Scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Now, we're going to circle back around and really dig into these verses in a few weeks that weekend before Easter as we call people to embrace the nonsense, embrace what many view as foolish but really as the power of God. And yet today we want to simply introduce this message which some do consider foolish. It's important for us to note that Corinth was a cosmopolitan city which prided itself in being in tune with Roman politics and, and thought. It was a city located in Greece which was influenced by the thinking of Greek philosophy. This young church, who was not Jewish in background, had not previously held a biblical worldview. They were in a culture that's very similar to ours in 2018, a culture in America that many are beginning to describe as a post-Christian culture. And I think in the midst of that culture of their day, in the midst of our culture today, we have to come back and we have to acknowledge that the, the core foundation of Christianity to many, it seems foolish. I like what N.T. Wright, who wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians that I've been reading, had to say about this point. He says, The point is that when Paul came into a pagan city that prided itself on its intellectual and cultural life and stood up to speak about Jesus of Nazareth, who'd been crucified by the Romans but raised from the dead by God, and who was now the Lord of the world, summoning people to faithful obedience, He knew what people would think. This was and is the craziest message anybody could imagine. This wasn't a smart new philosophy. It was madness. It wasn't an appeal to high culture. It was news of an executed criminal from a despised race. You see, that's what the message I wrestled with many years ago. When I first came to faith, when I first became a follower of Jesus, I had to wrestle with, do I believe this message? I mean, it's, when you pull back and think about it, it's really, it it seems crazy from the outside. Do I really believe that, that a person who was arrested and crucified by the authorities three days later came back from the dead? Do I really believe that's true? Or is that just a fairy tale I've been told? And so I investigated for myself. I read, I I, I took a Bible, and I started researching. And about that time, that Easter season, many years ago, uh, and this will date me a little bit, but there was this new mini series that was showing on TV called Jesus of Nazareth. And I watched it as I was reading the Bible, and I kept asking myself, Do I really believe this is true? You know what I came to believe? I came to believe with all my heart that this is a true message. One of the reasons why I came to believe it is because as I started reading a a New Testament that I could understand, in fact, we've got copies of it out in the lobby. We encourage you to pick one up. As I started reading from the pages of this book, I started realizing it was exposing stuff in my life and my heart that I was like, how could somebody 2,000 years ago know that I was going to be struggling with this? How could somebody 3,000 years ago, when I'm reading the Old Testament, be able to speak through all the veneer and speak right to my heart? And I became convinced this, this, these are not just the words of man. This is not some archaic religious document. This is truly the written Word of God because it's speaking into my heart in a way that the only way I can explain it is it's from God. If we had time in chapter 2, Paul says, listen, the words I'm writing are not coming from me. They're they're coming from the Spirit of God. But it's a decision point for all of us. You know, there's many in our world that say, oh, the Bible's archaic, The, the Bible's full of inconsistencies. I haven't found that to be true. In fact, the truth is, I I continue to find after, after decades of reading that it, it's fresh, it's new, it's powerful. It speaks to my heart. Have you embraced this message? Paul closes out the letter, as I want to close out today, by just reminding them of what they were before they heard the message of Christ. And as we prepare for communion, I want to ask you, for those of you who are believers in Christ, those of you who are followers of Jesus, how has your life been changed by this message? How has your life been changed by following that condemned criminal 2,000 years ago? Who He wasn't a criminal, but he was viewed that way. Died on a cross. And, and the Bible claims that on the third day, he came back from the dead. For those of you who have had your life changed by that story, I want you to think back, what was your life like before you embraced this message? This is how Paul reminds them in verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted to nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and He freed us from sin. Therefore, as the Scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. As we begin this series, as we prepare for communion, it's a time for us to humbly acknowledge that we don't have the answers within ourselves. That was true for me many years ago when I first became a Christian. It's still true for me today. When I face challenges and problems in my life, I have come to grips with the fact that the answer doesn't lie within, the answer lies with Him. And that's why I look to Jesus to be my hope, to be my Savior. During the time of communion, I don't know if you've thought about it, but every week when we take communion, it's a time for us to be reminded that we don't trust ourselves. We're not trusting in our own strength or our own wisdom or our own power. We're trusting the one that we have put our trust in, Jesus. It's a simple act, taking a piece of bread and a cup of juice, but it's a powerful message that we're trusting in him. We're trusting in Him to make us holy, to save us, and to change us. Think of what you were when He called you. Allow your heart to be filled with gratitude. And as you look to the future, look to Him to keep transforming you. Let's put our hope and our boasting only in Him. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank You. We thank You for this This message that's so powerful, it's simple, but it's powerful, that we need a Savior, that we need someone to change us, and Jesus is that one. Help us look to him as never before this Easter season. Help us look to him, not ourselves, for strength. Help us during this time of communion be filled with gratitude of the difference he's made in our life and help us look to him to keep changing us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings. Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and 11.15